0: Okay, okay, we're gonna stop the music and stop the background noise and jump right into this. Welcome to Probate Weekly, uh, where we get together every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific time. We also get together, uh, and this is also uh, national, so we have 7 p.m. Eastern time. And then we live stream this on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, X, place also I think people might wanna watch it. And I really appreciate you guys' support. I'm Bill Gross. I'm a practitioner in Los Angeles, California. And I do this call, this uh, this uh, podcast, video cast for three different reasons. One is is for me to learn about the business, I get a chance to interview some of the best people in real estate, some of the best people in probate real estate specifically. Number two, obviously build my business by talking to more people and, and networking. And I would encourage you if you're watching this. Uh, live on YouTube or LinkedIn or Facebook, go ahead and put your contact info in. Let's network. I do have the uh, Facebook group, Probate Weekly, where we continue the conversation and network there as well with real estate agents and attorneys and vendors across the country. Um, And then three, really, it's about, I think, challenging ourselves to improve our skills and learn on a regular basis. That I did this because I need to be held accountable to get together on a regular basis to improve my business. It's so easy, I think. For all of us, we're busy, we have things to do, uh, and to actually spend the time to improve yourself and to learn new new skills uh, is important. And so sometimes some of the guests I have are you know, directly attributable to our business. Sometimes they're a little bit out of our market, but the idea is the principles are the same. And so we'll get to that in just a bit. Um, a couple of things, just kind of some housekeeping. Um, this program is Probate Weekly, and you can go to probateweekly.com if you want to register. Uh, and it says regular Zoom call. We're gonna change that because we've gone to a, a no, non-Zoom format now. And the reason we did that is um, we found that people weren't interacting as much live, more more texting. So we can do that through YouTube or Facebook, but we get we don't get the watermark in the bottom right with Zoom, and we get high def instead of standard def, a little better video content especially since we're more people watching us on replay. So nowadays, if you put the email in, we'll send you reminders when we go live, as well as we'll send you reminders when the video's up so you can watch it. We'd love to have you do that. And then if you scroll down, we have a, a podcast version, so it's audio. On all those places you get that at, Apple and Spotify and Google Podcasts and such, and also our YouTube channel. You can subscribe there as well. Now, you can get more information about me, Linktree, linktr.e billgross Bill Gross, my name, has everything that I'm doing. And I just want to point out one thing I'm doing next week is I do a monthly real estate email masterclass. And you can click on it there. And that masterclass is $97. I do one hour. We'll go through how you can increase your uh, interaction with a customer database not one time, two times, four times, or 10 times, but 16 times by doubling your database, doubling your frequency, doubling your interaction with people, and doubling your platforms. And then not only do you get the hour with me there, but I do four follow-up sessions, half hour each in small group format, where we actually put into action what we talked about on that call. So I'd love to have you do that. It's $97. Feel free to sign up there. And really, this is because I am constantly coaching agents on this topic. I just decided that if I if I put it out there, at least pay it for my time, I can make it worthwhile for people to do that. It's a small group setting, usually five to ten people, which is great. And I think hopefully interactive, but also we work together and get the work done to improve our business. Okay, so um, – and normally we do this event. We do this via um, it's an interview format. Oops, let me pull that out. It's an interview format where I bring in people. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I had on here one of the leading eviction attorneys in Southern California, um, Eileen Kendall, Kendall Law, and she's a company that I've used numerous times for more complicated evictions. Uh, and I came to her because I was looking for the Daniel Bornstein, who's a leading eviction attorney in Northern California, San Francisco. He'll be our guest today, and so we'll have a chance to talk to him uh, shortly So he jumps on the call. I know he's finishing something up uh, right now. Okay, so last week I talked about 11 ways that you can build uh, get listings as a real estate agent. Um, and, we, and what I wanted to get across there, the point that was so important to me at least, was to say that there's not just one way to do this business and build your business if you're a realtor or investor or an attorney. And so many companies will advertise that you should either buy data and cold call attorneys, cold call petitioners, or do Facebook ads to them, really a cold methodology. But what I laid out, I think last week, was 11 different ways that you could get listings. And in fact, each of those 11 ways, in my opinion, had what I would call sub-niches so that those 11 ways really were hundreds of ways. We really broke it down as the ways that you could do business. And so I thought I off today with, uh, would be an additional 11 ways that you can make money in the probate space, whether you're a real estate agent or investor or wholesaler or an attorney or whatever you are. That Along the way, there's multiple ways to, and here's the key point I want to make here, bring value to your customer. And if you're bringing value to your customer, then you have multiple ways to get paid. Now, the key to this success in business, I believe, if you're going to add additional ways, streams of income, I think is the wrong term. Because that implies that all that matters is the money you receive. If you have multiple ways to bring value to your customer, what I can assure you is when you bring value to your customer, you're going to get paid. And so what I would challenge you to do is not to look for an additional way to get revenue but look for one of these ways that might be an additional way for you to bring value to customers so that they're benefited and in turn, you're going to get paid. Either you're going to sell more houses or you're going to get more investments or one of these methods will pay you in income. So we're going to talk about them one by one today. And let me see if I can get that Stop the share, go back, add the new share. And there we are. Oh, that's no good. Uh, I need to put this over here. Let's do that. So remove. One second. little technical difficulty here. Present. Screen. Present. Share. And voila. Okay. So in the course of being a real estate agent, or uh, it, it, let's, not talk, let's not talk about if you're an investor, but real estate agent on this one, you should have a strategy for investing and holding properties. Um, if you're out talking to people who have property to sell regularly, some of those should be opportunities that you might want to buy and invest in. We should buy oops. Oh no, there's our there's our our guest, and he's saying he can't get in. Let me fix that problem. Hold on one second. Invite. Here's the link. Okay, that's a problem. Not sure why that happened that way. Okay. So what I want to say is that, um, go back. Sorry about the delay here, people. You should not buying, investing, holding property. Now I buy and, and uh, have investments. I mean, that's right now for property. Not sure if I'm going to keep it. Not sure if I'm going to rent it. Not sure if I'm going to develop it. Not sure if I'm going to flip it. But this should be the mindset that is part of your business and this came to me because I had, a, I had a friend who's a investor slash wholesaler called me and said i have this problem i had this in contract the buyer backed out can you help me and he told me the deal and he told me the numbers i said because i knew the market i knew this area really well i said well i'll buy it now i didn't have all the money together i have a, I have more than that in cash but i'm not going to buy it for cash but i i know how to get financed i know how to get a hard money loan i know that if I like the deal, I can bring other investors in. So I know the market well enough to know I can make that deal. And I put down the EMD and we're getting way to wave contingencies on a great deal. I think the best investment in my career. But the key is if you're not talking to people, you'll get these opportunities. If you talk to more people, you'll get those opportunities. And that's the key. So I just want to urge you that in part of your real estate practice, uh, if you're a wholesaler, you should be thinking about how do you talk to enough people so that you have the opportunities for investments that come up to you, number one. Number two, be flipping property. And this is kind of the opposite. I'm probably more likely to do number two. But there are times when, when all you're doing is buying a property. And in my case, I do lipstick flips. I'll buy it, clean it up. I'll, I'll, I'll junk it out. I'll send in Molly Maids to clean it up. Shoot it, put MLS, and sell the property. This is common when somebody's selling it and just wants cash in the room and go off market. And so you should have the strategy in place and you should be expecting to find, at least for me, a deal a year. And I'll tell you, I didn't do one last year. I was very busy last year, personal stuff. My wife was battling cancer successfully, new grandkid. So as a result of all that, we ended up, I ended up not buying a property last year. This year, I mean, that's where we done one. And and I hope to do a couple. So this should be part of your business as well. Number three, do construction to generate business. There are people who I know are real estate agents slash contractors and they focus on probate because many of those houses have been neglected for a long period of time. And this is a chance for them to generate construction business, get the property uh, into probate, we'll do a rehab, we'll fix it up, we'll add a bedroom, bathroom, bring it to market, and then you get paid on the construction work. Now, I don't like that. Personally, I'm not a contractor. I'm not comfortable with all that part, but I know people who do that and do that successfully as part of the business. Um okay, let's see here. I don't see, hold it. Trying to bring in our guest. There he is. Okay, you know what? I'm gonna stop this part of the call. And as I mentioned at the beginning, uh our a repeat. Um I'm really excited to bring to you guys today because one of the key parts of my business is evicting somebody. It could be a squatter, it could be A tenant could be a tenant at will. It could be a lot of different things. And while I don't use him as a client because I'm in Southern California, he is in Northern California. He is, I believe the authority on uh, representing um, landlords and and evictions, particularly in Northern California, uh, attorney Daniel Bornstein. Daniel, thanks for coming back to our program. Uh,
1: My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Happy to be here and happy belated new year. And uh, I'm glad things are doing well for you and, please ask me any questions you have. I'm happy to help.
0: Fantastic. So just a couple of quick things. Obviously he's in a different geography and he's not giving us legal advice, but we're going to talk about different scenarios and hopefully learn and then learn enough that if you have a situation that makes sense and you're in the areas he services, you can contact him and use him professionally. So let's start from the beginning. Daniel, what geography do you support as far as your legal practice?
1: Uh, Generally, uh, throughout the uh, Bay Area, reaching up to uh, Northern California, but I have offices in San Francisco and Oakland, we can radiate outward up to Sacramento and down as low as uh, Santa Cruz, Uh, but with the onset of different local jurisdictions having different rent control and just cause eviction ordinances, it really uh, demands uh, a level of expertise locally in order to be able to handle all the different nuances of landlord-tenant
0: law. And I think that's a really important point you make that's true in Northern California and Southern, which is that there's this layering of laws, state level, uh, county level, city level. Sometimes you have properties that are in unincorporated county, but the mailing address is the city. How does that get handled? So it's really important when you contact an attorney with questions about a property or, you know, contract, but you know, those questions, you have the legal description, you know, what city it's in, what jurisdictions in. And I think find a, an attorney that is an expert in that area, rather than just a generalist who can service anywhere in California as a paralegal, basically.
1: Uh, Absolutely. And in fact, the protocol that I would have to follow. So if you would call me up, uh, first of all, we all know, hopefully that California has state rent control and state just cause eviction rules. There are exemptions to that, but then if a local jurisdiction has a more restrictive ordinance, you follow the local ordinance. And so what I often have to do when I do an intake is the first thing I do is I ask where the property is located. I then have to ask when it was built. Then I have to ask, is it a multi-unit property? Is it a single family home? Is it a single family home with an accessory dwelling unit? And then I ask if it's a condo and only then am I able to go through the filtration process and figure out what laws I have to apply. And so you want to be very careful. You want to have an attorney who is operating in that jurisdiction because they're going to be more amenable and more understanding of the particular laws. So... If you're in Santa Monica, you want an attorney who's handling Santa Monica landlord tenant issues as opposed to your cousin who's an attorney in maybe Palm Springs who's going to help you out because attorneys are going to be particularly at a disadvantage and uh, may in fact be dangerous because they don't know what they don't know, which is part of the issue all the time.
0: You know, I think that's one of the things so many times real estate agents will recommend an attorney they see to do a presentation. And there's some great attorneys who do a great job educating our market, which is important. It's an important role. and and But their business, in my experience, the ones that do the bigger speeches and presentations, are often um, serving really large landlords, really large multifamilies. It's, it, they're more of an eviction mill. And mm-hmm. then once the case comes to a litigate situation, which is more and more, they really turn you back and say, good luck, go find an attorney who can help you. And so as real estate agents and professionals, our job is to vet the situation. If a client just needs an eviction mill, that's one level of attorney. But when you have heirs and family members that you know are going to fight, or they've already contacted an attorney and executed that, that's when you need to have an expert in the eviction space in that area. And that's where Daniel comes in in Northern California. And then again, the key is to find an an expert in those areas.
1: So- I would just say, and I can add to that is when you ask an attorney, Hey, do you do landlord tenant law and you want a particular type of termination, whether it's an owner move in termination, whether it's removal of a squatter, whether it's removal of a beneficiary, you actually have to ask the attorney, how many times do you handle this particular type of termination? Because that gets down and drills down to whether the person is capable of doing it. You want to hire an attorney who can see over the horizon of your dispute and be able to remedy it and feel comfortable that they have a comfort level on that typical fact pattern.
0: And I also think that we can make their time more valuable or efficient by pre-giving the information. He gave you a whole list of things he asks. As a realtor, I have access to that in the public record information in the MLS. There's no reason why I shouldn't have sent that to the attorney ahead of time and have it in my hands when I'm on the phone with them to answer those questions. When's it built? What's the zoning? What's the is the single family or condo? Those are things that by working together, we are more effective. When we just throw out an attorney's name, we kind of throw our customer's come back out in the wilderness and they're going to get perhaps, perhaps get a good attorney or perhaps get eaten by a lion along the way. So I, I, that analogy just didn't really work that well, but I, I started with it. Okay. So let's talk about, you know, before I go into details, I really like just to ask you, was one of the things that fascinated me the last time we spoke was your hyper focus, which I think is your strength in this area. I got to think when you started this process, that was a little bit of a scary decision, or did that process develop over time? How is it that today you're so hyper-focused in this area? I know you're probably too busy to take on other stuff, but when you made a decision, what was your thought process?
1: The thought process was that uh, you could come out of law school and – be a civil attorney and immediately help people in this space because there are so many disputes involving landlord-tenant matters and once you get comfortable in this area and you do good work the business keeps cascading and cascading and i will have i've been doing this for over 30 years i will have a client who uh, in 20 years ago had a landlord tenant dispute i haven't heard from him In a decade and a half or 20 years and he pops back up and says "Daniel, you did good work for me at the beginning of 2020 or the beginning of 2000 i'm coming back i have another uh, problem the beauty of uh being a attorney for housing providers is that people come to you they have a thorn in their head which is they have a failed relationship that they thought was going to be in good faith a great relationship it failed and until you resolve it they can't really relax And so I'm very proud of being able to resolve disputes and allow people to function post the dispute healthy without that anxiety. And then thereafter, I'll see them in five years. I'll see them in 10 years when they have another one. But hopefully it's a long distance between each time.
0: You you use a key word that I wouldn't normally ascribe to your niche, which is relationships. But I do know when I interviewed the top multifamily operator in the South Bay here in Southern California, uh, South Bay is like Torrance, Redondo beach. They emphasize so much the vetting of the tenants, the communication to the tenants before they move in, you know, pre-screening. And then while the tenants are there relationships that they feel that's what keeps their disputes down, their delinquencies down, what got them through COVID. And I think so many times investors wrongly look at uh, tenants as merely post Uh, Post office box checks that should come in and miss the part that if you have a bad relationship, you're kind of more open to a legal problem, true or false.
1: Oh, I I agree. The biggest decision is who you allow into your building Um, and sometimes looking at a piece of paper and uh, checking boxes and uh, not actually having that dialogue with the person uh, is a foolish choice because once you put someone in it's very hard to get them out and uh, while they're in maintaining a great level of communication with them is really a reflection of uh, treating people with dignity and when you do so you're more likely to get quality communications quality behavior because there's a sense of We are in the same boat with people who are interacting because you're providing housing and I want to be a good uh, citizen. And my expectation is that you'll also be a good citizen. And, you know, by and large, 85 percent of the time, that's how the experience is. But there are uh, fissure points uh, in this relationship that create uh, opportunities for disputes. And uh, that's where, of course, uh, I'm available but my strong preference is uh, to resolve disputes as quickly and as cheaply as possible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I will tell you, there's two different types of attorneys. There's one type of attorney who likes disputes and it's like um, it gets a rise out of them. And there's other attorneys who don't like disputes and want to resolve them as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. I find myself in that second category where I really want to get a dispute resolved so that the client can move on. And usually it's good business practice to try to do so as efficiently as possible. Enlarging and a dispute is, is not a good
0: choice. And I would imagine the best resolution of a dispute is not to have a dispute in the first place.
1: If you can avoid it, avoid it. And um, avoiding it as you sort of, foresh- uh, sort of intimated is quality relationships at all times, especially with those people who are inside your building yeah. and treating them with the level of dignity and respect that you would expect if you were in that building. Right. And uh, when you do that, you engender a uh, environment that uh, reduces the risk of conflict.
0: So we're gonna get some specifics here real quick, but before we do some quick housekeeping, if you're watching this on a live stream, feel free to put questions in. If you're watching it on YouTube, I see we've got a group there uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, feel free to put questions or I'm going to catch them live and I'll feed them as and when appropriate, as well as feel free to put your networking information there so we can all work together and generate some business. I do want to say this is Probate Weekly. We do this every Thursday at 4 p.m. Uh, Pacific time. And if you want to sign up, go to probateweekly.com, register here for reminders. If you scroll down, there's the podcast version, audio version, or you can subscribe on YouTube. We're really excited to have a returning guest, Daniel Bornstein, Bornstein Law, um, from Northern California. I, I, you know, I will say he is the authority on evictions in Northern California. And I've, I've followed him pretty closely and watches his, his uh, blog and in the media and things he does. He's just a fantastic resource. I'm really excited to have him here again. So it's BornsteinLaw.com if you want to reach out to him. Uh, and we'll have other contact information in the um, description below. When we're done today, you can continue the conversation, probateweekly.com on Facebook. We have about 3,700 members. If you're looking for referrals for agents or attorneys around the country, great place to ask for it. You're also welcome to post your own uh, content. Courtney Rollins, we help him build his YouTube channel. Feel free to post your content here as well. Kevin Bemwell as well does that. Feel free to put your probate-related content to help you build your business. And then if you want more of what I do, I'm at Linktree and Linktr.e slash Bill Gross. And I want to point out next week we're having our real estate email masterclass. I get together and do this about once a month. It's $97 is a full hour that I lead in a small group. And then we have four 30 minute follow-up sessions. And the goal here is to increase your touching with your past client database, the people you know best, 16 times, not just 10 times like Grant Cardone says, but 16 times and you have a money back guarantee on that. So look to see that, that's actually next week on Wednesday, the 21st is the next version of that. Okay, so Daniel, let's go through kind of different you know definitions of problems. And maybe kind of get a little overview of what some of the options are. So the one that pe- the name that people use most often is, and is probably overused for situations not appropriate, is a squatter. So legally, what's a squatter, and then what are the opportunities or options for a landlord to remove somebody who's squatting on their property?
1: Yeah. So uh, the word squatter doesn't really tell me enough about that person for me to determine what you can and can't do. If there is a burglar who broke into your unit or is a trespasser, then you may be able to call the police and have them arrested. Mm-hmm. However, here's the problem. If you call a local police officer and you say, hey, there's someone who's inside my unit who did not have permission to be there. And the police officer shows up at the door, rings the doorbell, and the person says, look, I have, I have rights here and shows them a bogus piece of paper that says that they have a a landlord-tenant relationship, the police officer is trained to treat that matter as a civil matter and suggest you hire an attorney to handle the landlord-tenant eviction. And so that's really frustrating when you have a situation where someone did not have a landlord-tenant relationship and just has camped into the unit because they took advantage of maybe the vacancy. My general suggestion, is if you have someone who broke into your unit, call 911 and say, hey, there's an act of burglary going on. Someone broke into the unit and the squad Mm -hmm. cars will come. It will be more of a scene, but you're likely to get them removed as opposed to having the police officers say to you, hey, it's a civil matter, right? Now, if someone's been in your unit actively for five, six months and you've done nothing about it, then that may not be a trespasser anymore. It may be characterized somewhat differently. And if they added their name to utility bills, you got yourself a bigger problem. In that situation, that that person probably, we would consider the person maybe a licensee, someone who had de facto permission to be there. And then you have to rescind permission. They're not a tenant, they're a licensee. You rescind permission, By writing a formal letter, rescinding the uh, right to occupy, and if they're still there after you rescinded permission, then you have to file a lawsuit. And that's typically no different than family members who have a child who's not doing well, an adult child, and they offer them the use of a house that they own. Not a tenant, because there's no landlord-tenant contract, there's no lease agreement. Uh, The person is because of your family relationship being given the opportunity to live in a house. And that person never got their life together and they have been enjoying the benefit of that house without any sort of expectation of compensation. And they continue to live there until you're so frustrated that you want them out. In that situation, they're not a tenant. They don't have tenant rights. They're a licensee. They had permission to be there and you have to rescind permission and thereafter if after you sent them a rescission of their right to occupy you um they still are in the unit then you would file what's called a forcible detainer action or an unlawful detainer action and it's a different type of eviction but the process is pretty much the same so, so we have a trespasser we have someone who uh burglarized the place then we have people who have licensed to occupy the premises who are not tenants and then we have tenants
0: so let's let's go back a little bit okay we've identified that let's let's take them one at a time so the key on the trespasser is if you catch them day one and the police show up and they've broken in and there's crack pipes you know the typical scenario there's crack pipes maybe there's some blankets maybe there's uh the utilities are off maybe there's a, a little hot plate or something in there um, the police are are open to in LA now, post-COVID, removing them. Mm-hmm. But if they've been there for five months and they're and they're living in the beds and they're living in and it looks like somebody's living in the property, that's the licensee problem. They're gonna pretend they're a licensee, or they could pretend to be, or they could pretend to have a lease. And that so the key there is get them out and secure the property, keep them out would be how to deal with the squatters up front, right? Uh,
1: yeah. And in fact, um, if you find someone who broke into the premises and you know, it's someone broke into the premises, you don't have to necessarily wait for the police. You could basically wait for them to be out of the unit and then turn around and secure it up right. and keep people out. It's just a cat and mouse game. Right. And I also have a property management company. I'm overseeing a couple uh, buildings that are vacant. And uh, it is continuously a problem with having to board up a place and police it. And if you don't police your property, you're going to have people who are going to find a way in and uh, therein lies the difficulty. And that's why we do want to, you know, uh, make sure that if you have a vacant unit, you're intermittently responsible for making sure that it doesn't become a place of habitation for people.
0: And I had this in a commercial property where people broke in and, called the police, they got them out, they came back the next night and they were systematically removing copper and different uh, valuable material from the property. It was a large commercial property. The property went down in value from about $3 million to 1.4, because by the time they're done, the electrical shot, the plumbing shot, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and also a buyer is, is concerned about, you know, getting them out and them coming back or retribution or whatever. So uh, again, the key is if you can get them out front, but you got to secure the property, not so simple. You know, we boarded up, we put fences up, gates up, we had security companies. It, you, you have to really jump on it early. My, my client in this case just was too slow each level. We kept, we kept kind of following the intensity. So, okay, so that's the, the typical we think of as a squatter, somebody who breaks in or comes in illegally. Now, the licensee you mentioned is very common in probate, right, because parents have one son, one daughter, never launched, never left, may have been the caregiver for the parent, and that then adds to their – sense of entitlement, right? I took care of mom, took care of dad for 40 years. Therefore, I'm entitled to live here for free forever. I gave up my career to do this. And there's two or three other heirs who might be entitled to say, well, no, the house is one third mine or two thirds ours. And and we want to sell it without you. So um, you get involved in those cases. And what's that process? You mentioned the licensee, you're sending the license and then you have unlawful detainer process. What's the process like to get them removed?
1: So Uh, I do handle this quite a bit. And I have a a, a great deal of resources of uh, uh, probate attorneys, trust and state attorneys who will come to me and say, Daniel, I've got a, I've got a beneficiary in a unit. Uh, The other family members would like to sell it. The beneficiary is going to receive the accrued benefit of the sale. But the bigger issue for that beneficiary is they don't don't have a place to leave, to go. And they've had a good run. So they don't want to cooperate. In that situation, the administrator of the estate can hire me and I will send the beneficiary a letter saying um, you need to leave. Your uh, right to occupy is rescinded. And uh, if they don't leave, then we file a lawsuit. And that's usually a 60, uh, I would say, two to four month process after the lawsuit's filed. Generally, it results in the person vacating. Uh, And usually if they're a beneficiary, I try to explain to them that you are shooting yourself in the foot by camping in this uh, building, you're actually impeding your ability to maximize value out of the estate. And two, you do this long enough, you may end up losing some credit, uh, some aspect of your beneficial interest because of what you've done to the estate. So I'm usually able to finesse something to get a vacancy.
0: Yeah, and just to, to elaborate a little bit on what you just said. So what you're saying is potentially, <clears throat> while they would benefit from they're the sale of the property in some cases, they might be liable for all the expense of getting them removed and all any losses and any marketing losses because of the property and as a result of that, that's going to come out of their side. They're, they're going to pay much more than they would otherwise have to pay if they moved out and help support a timely sale.
1: Yeah. And it's a, <coughs> a real tense situation where you have family members and one brother yep. is letting the family down because, yep. uh, You're at this point where they need to be cooperative and make a move. And the family believes that they've already spent a great deal of resources of the family by living there for free. And they still don't want to cooperate. It's ugly. But, um, you know, uh, generally speaking, you're able to recover possession of the premises. Uh, And if you're not and the family decides to sell with the brother in there, then that's an opportunity for an investor because they can buy the property cheaper. And then hire me to rescind the right to occupy because the person's not a tenant. And I do that quite a bit as well, where uh, family members don't want to address the issue and they sell the property at a reduced price point.
0: Um, Classic movie where this comes up, every time I watch the movie, one of my favorites all the time, is being there with Peter Sellers and he plays the part of a... um, of a butler for a very wealthy man in New York. And it's a funny movie worth watching, classic. But um, there's a scene where the probate attorneys come into the house because uh, they know the decedent passed and they not know he was there. And they ask him what his intentions are. And he, and he basically, because he's, he's, he's just not smart, he just walks out the door. I'm thinking the attorneys must have celebrated. The guy just walked out the door without cash for keys, no negotiations, no money. That doesn't really happen in real life. In real life, that guy's getting Somebody telling them, "Hey, you can get 10000 dollars, fifty thousand dollars." This was a you know a state home. It could have got you know, who knows how much. So, right. But anyhow, worth watching that moment in time when the yeah. attorneys look at each other and, and are high fiving each other.
1: But let let me also uh, bring up this nuance: the decision to treat someone as a licensee is a fork in the road, because if you choose to call them a licensee and say that they're not a tenant, you've got to be very careful because if you choose that route and you're wrong and they prove that they're a tenant, you lose your case. Mm. Oftentimes we think of a tenancy as someone who has a written lease, paid a security deposit, pays monthly rent, but that's not always the case. The definition of a tenant under certain jurisdictions is an exchange for the right to occupy the premises. It Mm. can be work for hire. Mm. It can be paying utility bills. It can be very low threshold. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes you can get into a dispute as to whether the person has a tenancy or whether they have a licensee. It's easier to transition someone who is a licensee out of a premises than a tenant. And also A beneficiary of an estate can also be a tenant. If they have a written lease and they're paying rent, they are both a beneficiary and a tenant, and they have a lot of control, especially if you're dealing with a just cause eviction jurisdiction, such as Santa Monica, San Francisco, Berkeley, Oakland, or what have you. So you really need the consulting of an attorney to figure out what their status is. And once you make that leap of faith, if you're proven wrong, then you've got to start the process over.
0: Wow. So <clears throat> the the uh, those are the more common cases. And then uh, there are more common niches. And there's the standard case would be a tenant. And uh, you know somebody inherits a property and there's a tenant who might be in violation. Maybe they're not paying rent. They stop paying rent for three months or six months because they know the owner died and they feel like that's their free ride or, or whatever. And they'll say the owner hasn't taken care of the property and I had to... Uh, take care of it. So what are some of the common uh, problems and solutions when you do have a bonafide tenant with a real rent agreement in the property, yet they're trying to take advantage of the situation and not pay?
1: Well, uh, I, having done this for 30 years, have seen everything, but every once in a while I get surprised. The lost lease agreement, uh, when there's a transition is often uh, uh, very helpful for a, a tenant who uh, casually doesn't have a lease and there's a new owner and the tenant starts sending you reduced uh, rent payments and there's no history uh, of what the rent payments are. Uh, one thing I will say, one solution that I often suggest to people is when you're purchasing a property and there's rent debt that has accumulated before you became the owner is part of the purchase escrow, have the seller assign you the right to collect the debt that has accumulated. Mm. Because if you have that debt, and you know it's five months of rent debt at $2,000 a month, you become the owner, you write them a letter, say, be advised, I'm an assignee of the uh, five-month debt that you haven't paid. Please, honor before the 15th of uh, March, please pay the $10,000. If not, I'll formally demand it. And then you can formally demand it and you recoup that funds. so as a buyer you want to always have the assignment of the rent debt that has accumulated that hasn't been paid if it's discernible and knowable
0: one of the common practices in selling property that's that's rented is tiptoeing around the tenant and so we talked in the beginning about the importance of a relationship but but now you're buying a property with somebody pre existing. And, and so you can ask for copies of the agreements and the rent history and the expenses. <clears throat> but it seems to me, if you don't talk to the tenant, you don't really, or somebody doesn't talk to the tenant, you don't really know what you're getting. So, would you advise yeah. in the case of somebody who's buying a property, maybe a two or three, a threeplex, fourplex, with mm-hmm. a couple of tenants in there already, what would you advise them as the best procedures to protect themselves when they're buying the property?
1: Uh, great question. I mean, buying a property without knowing who's in there and really getting a feel for the person is a leap of mm-hmm. faith. Because, uh, you know, people who are not sophisticated can end up having misery in their life because they bought a property and they didn't realize they have a outlier of a personality who's going to make themselves miserable and they're not ready for that. Generally speaking, you want to have a lease agreement. You want to have a completed tenant estoppel. You want to have uh, clarity about uh, whether there are any existing disputes. And, you know, you're welcome to do social media and find out about the person. Uh, If you're really uh, uncomfortable, uh, hire a private investigator to do a database search, a public record database search. You can find a lot of information about it. What you have to understand is this. A seller who wants to sell a property may try to mute the tension that has existed between the seller and the tenant. Because if they know that this is going to be an acrimonious relationship, that's going to scare buyers away. Right. And so oftentimes you don't know how bad it is until after the fact, because the seller is not going to disclose it because it will affect marketability and value of that property, because a property value is not just replacement. It's rent roll, cash flow, and also who you have inside there and how much misery they're going to cause or how wonderful they're going to be, uh, because that is a variable that you have to consider.
0: Excuse me, Diana asks, um, is this being recorded? Yes, this is on YouTube. You can go to episodes.probateweekly.com and you can see all the episodes, including this one on recording. Um, And Cass is asking, what does license title mean? I don't think I heard you say that phrase license.
1: I, I, I didn't say title. I said license, a license agreement. A license is where someone has permission to be in the premises. And by virtue of you giving them permission, you can always rescind permission to occupy that's distinctly different than if they have a legal tenancy where they have a contract and they're paying rent and it's a formal agreement that's a tenant so we have different categories we have the trespasser we have a licensee and we have a tenant and knowing what you have is vital to knowing what you can and can't do and what hamstrings you have in how you handle that post-purchase relationship
0: and I think the way I, I try to think, remind myself of those three statuses is the, in the there's the people who don't have permission to be in the property at all but are there. There are people who had, who had permission, but that permission may have expired or you can terminate it. And mm-hmm. there are people who have a legal contract that establishes their permission, and you need to kind of work within the form of that contract as well.
1: Correct. And it can get very complicated and very cumbersome. Uh, One simple example is a resident manager, right? A resident manager who is given the right of occupancy as part of their employment relationship is a licensee. And typically, in the employment relationship, if you terminate the employment relationship, you can ask them to leave because they're only licensees. Mm. However, If the resident manager as part of their resident manager position was paying rent, when you terminate them, they go back to their tenancy. And that's where it can be cumbersome. So it can be really complicated. Suffice it to say, when you're in a situation where you're trying to discern what the status of the person is, go and talk to an attorney who has comfort in this area and they can ask you the right questions. And then you make a uh, choice of what category, and then you act accordingly.
0: One of the I um, <clears> think <throat> common mis- misperceptions of landlords is they they don't ever read the contract that they sign to their tenant, and oftentimes those contracts give them the right to do periodic inspections of a property, and or um, show the property. Uh, and and I see the default conditions I see are giving notice 24 hours in advance, not. Sitting an appointment or getting permission. And so I think this obviously gets down to the relationship, right? If you're if you're the owner, you have a good relationship with the tenant, they're gonna work with you a little bit. If you have no relationship, it's hard to enforce your rights. Like you can say all you want, I have the right to come to the property and inspect it, but that right might cost you, and, and particularly in a probate where you have maybe an owner who's deceased and has been vacant for months. Um, so how do you advise owners of property when they're buying, as far as those rights, are you the right to see the property, the right to inspect the property? Obviously you're going to recommend they see all of them if they can. And how about also um, enforcing those rights when you're uh, an owner of a property, maybe you've inherited it. uh, How do you go about and how important are those rights to maintain?
1: Uh, Very important to maintain. Uh, I'm dealing with all sorts of issues of access. Um, If a owner doesn't have keys, Uh, how to handle not being able to access the building in an emergency owners who are buying post foreclosure properties with occupants who they don't know are in there, but they got what they believe to be a good price, but they haven't seen the inside. Um, I have different approaches. Uh, Generally uh, you do have uh, per California law as an owner, the right to access a unit upon 24 hours notice uh, as long as you post it. And as long as you're not using uh, it to harass, but here you can post a notice if you don't have keys and the tenant's not going to let you in, you got yourself a pickle. And I have people say, well, I'll get a locksmith to open up the door. And I'm like, I'm not so sure I'm comfortable with you getting a locksmith to break open a door simply because you don't have a key. What I recommend is a different approach. So for instance, let's assume you bought a property, you don't have keys and you've asked a tenant for keys and they still won't give you keys and you don't have a written lease agreement. Well, under California law, you have the right to enter, but if you can't enter because the tenant's not allowing you to enter, then what do you do? What I recommend you do is as follows. Go to a locksmith and have them pre-cut keys to a new lock. Deliver the pre-cut keys with a letter to the tenant saying, we are delivering you pre-cut keys to a lock that will be installed in 72 hours. Be advised, we're entitled to make an alteration to the premises we own. And we're entitled to do so because in an emergency, we want to have access to the property and we are not doing anything to harass, but other than simply have keys to a building that we own. You give them the keys first, then you change the locks Mm. and therefore you cannot be accused of a lockout because you pre-gave them the keys. That's one approach. Now, if you have a recalcitrant tenant, Who's looking for a fight, their easy solution is after you install the new lock, they turn around and replace it with their old lock or they drill out the cylinder. But that cat and mouse game is always available to people. But the solution of delivering keys that are already pre-cut for a new lock is what generally serves the purpose of you gaining access. And remember, Mm. if you post a proper 24-hour notice, you're allowed to go in. You don't have to wait for the tenant to give you permission. Right. But as you indicated before, we want to have great relationships with people. Right. We want to come into a unit because we want to inspect it, because we have to keep the place in habitable condition. We're not there to spy. We're not there to do anything except for make sure it's a safe, wonderful space for a tenant to flourish. And if it needs repairs, we need to do it. If we need to make sure carbon monoxide detectors, smoke detectors are functioning, we go in we don't do it once a month. I like to do it at least twice a year, or I like to do it if there's a need for repair. Other than that, I want people to enjoy themselves and only enter the unit when it's necessary.
0: I had a buyer once who, when he was investigating the property, determined that a particular tenant with low rates, long-term service, had like an a, accumulated a family of about eight people living in a two-bedroom apartment, which was by city code, unlawful, right? There's limits to how many people can live in a property from a health point of view because there's only so much plumbing and water and those kinds of things. And so his strategy was to buy the property and to verify that there are more people living there and then to file a complaint and use that as a way to kind of leverage them out. And I said, you know, you're really, you're just really cruising for bruising there because just like you can start with legal warfare, so can they. Um, and it just seems to me, in, 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 by coincidence, perhaps in probate court, on the same floor as most of the probate departments in L.A. County uh, is unlawful detainer courts. It's like, it's like across the hallway at the far end. But it just seems there I see constantly attorney from attorneys from uh, nonprofits or um, social action organizations. It, it seems like any tenant who goes to court is going to be approached by an attorney who for free is going to serve them, and you're really going to end up in war. So how even if you have the legal right to file, Um, How much should an owner be prepared uh, if they think they're just going to bully somebody legally? How much should they be prepared to to face resistance that's equal to or stronger?
1: Well, in Northern California, uh, by and large, tenants get access to free legal representation and a sharp landlord practice will create uh, risk for you. Uh, and remember, it's not a math problem. It's not two plus two equals four, and therefore you win the case and therefore you recover possession. Uh, in a situation where you have um, overcrowding, well, you also have uh, tennis rights uh, to be part of an integrated family, right? And instead of believing that law is like a math problem where there's only one answer, remember, there are competing narratives. Yes, it could be overcrowded. on the other hand, if there are all family members, Are you really likely to displace a family who has five kids and two adults when they're struggling in a town that's progressive? It's tricky. And so oftentimes I'm having to caution people that what you think is going to happen isn't in fact how it's going to happen, which is avoid the dispute. If you bought this building because a seller didn't know what to do with an overcrowded unit and you bought the building for a quarter million dollars less than what it would be worth vacant, take twenty five thousand dollars and offer it to that family to transition them out and you've avoided the risk of them going to an attorney and you've got habitability issues, you've got warranty, uh, you've got leaks, you've got rodent infestation, you've got what have you. You're smart. You're using money to make money. You're not using money to have a dispute. And when you find an attorney who's looking to make your life easier by maximizing value out of your real estate investments by being smart and not, you know, not looking for the dispute, but avoiding it, that's where you have a good relationship. And, you know, as you see in Southern California with people having free representation, uh, it becomes very expensive, very time-consuming, and you wish sometimes you hadn't gotten into that dispute because you don't know how to get out of it, right? And it's you buy a building that's overcrowded, and all of a sudden you go very aggressive with one family, and. All of a sudden, a nonprofit attorney finds out that there's actually an unpermitted unit that's been you've been collecting 2000 dollars a month on. They called the Department of Building Inspections, and now you lost a unit because it's not legal. Or you have to now displace the people temporarily to legalize the unit, which is going to cost you a couple hundred thousand dollars. So in your decision to be aggressive, you actually created a target for yourself.
0: You know, I'm an affiliate member of the, of the bar nationally. Uh, and then a couple of local jurisdictions, just to read and understand attorneys, because typically they're my clients. And I'll say this: after reading um, chat rooms and the American Bar Association magazine, you would never want to have to go in front of a judge and be judged, assuming you can be judged fairly, as the owner of property. It just—I'm sure it happens. And I'm not a pessimist by my nature. I'm one though to eliminate risk the last thing you would want to do is be in los angeles or san francisco in front of a judge even if you're right even if you have all the paperwork the last thing you want to be is that uh the the owner of the property Mm -hmm. trying to get a judge to agree with you against some tenant because it's just the the wave of the ocean is moving against you just it just is
1: the the optics of displacement uh of people in housing during post COVID. And during a housing crisis that we have in California, it's really suggestive that you try to resolve your case. And out of 100 100 cases I will have, maybe two will end up in a trial. 98% will resolve. And the goal is to accomplish the goal, which is usually recovery of possession of the unit voluntarily. And using money to accomplish that is good business for you because otherwise you're using the money to go to trial and you don't know how it's going to play out.
0: Now, as a probate focused real estate agent, you know, most of the business is residential, but increasingly more and more is commercial, industrial, retail space, multifamily. So how is the different laws of evictions? uh, uh, Obviously, we can't get into all the laws and all the details, but just kind of as an overview how difficult is it to um, remove, uh, let's say, tenants who aren't complying, aren't paying rent in a commercial space versus residential?
1: But generally speaking, there's less protections for businesses that aren't paying their rent than tenants who aren't paying their rent. Because residential tenants have habitability, uh, warranty of habitability protections, whereas resi- uh, commercial tenants typically do not. And so it is generally easier to recover possession for a month to month termination of a commercial tenant than a termination of a residential tenant. However, I want to caution you when a commercial tenant has a viable business in their space and you try to recover possession and they know that that's going to destroy their business, they will fight and fight. To preserve their business because it's not simply about the commercial space it's about destroying their livelihood right and so you have to be smart about that as well right. and also you have to tuck in your pride because sometimes keeping someone in a unit despite the fact that you have friction is good business because you have cash flow coming and for commercial businesses right now where a tenant is hard to come by in certain parts of california with the uh, collapse of uh, office space with the uh, uh, retail collapse with restaurants going out of business if a tenant who's paying you twelve thousand dollars a month comes to you and asks you for a rent reduction to eight thousand so they can keep their business going and you say no and they give you back the keys only for you to have 12 months of a vacancy Right. and then your new tenant is now paying you 7000 because you couldn't find a um, market rate tenant anymore, you would have wished you worked with that tenant. So there's more working with tenants in a business component. Right. And you've got to be smart, not right. aggressive.
0: And I had a case where them. it was happening to be probate as well, where it was a vacant lot that was being used for commercial purposes, and it was a hazard. It was, it was wood pallets. It was a fire hazard. It'd been tagged the area. And my, my uh, client wanted to get rid of him to sell the property. <clears throat> and they had a very low income. And, and I tried to explain to my client, the problem is that it's cheaper for him to pay attorney's fees to fight in, in an unwinnable case than it is to move and pay market rent. He was paying like $1,500 a month and the market rent was $6,000. And so obviously the tenant figured, well, I'll just pay the attorney $3,000 a month and just tell him as long as you can keep me here, I'd rather pay you $3,000 because if I move, I'm going to have to pay, you know, 6,000. And it's just, you're, you're so right. It's a business decision to look at this. And oftentimes Mm -hmm. the relationship can keep you um, from making a business mistake. That's going to bite you back. In this case, we, we, we worked with him. We gave him time to find a space. He found a space. We were lucky because it was a, it was a hazard. These pallets were legally a fire hazard. So we hadn't, the city was not going to be sympathetic. They were going to force them out one way or the other, but absent that, I think that I would stay there forever. I think as long as he pays legal fees and you have a sharp attorney versus a not sharp attorney, they could be there forever, perhaps. So okay. Well, look, um, Daniel, I, I've always learned so much when I have you. I really appreciate on behalf of everybody on the call and he's gonna watch this. I appreciate you taking time with us, sharing with us. I, I also you know watch your your blog posts and I've seen you on uh YouTube. And I know you're an advocate for properties rights, an advocate for omers, but I think also an advocate to do it in a professional standard way and and try to uh, raise the standards rather than just uh, bully people out. So thank you so much for time today. I really appreciate you being with us.
1: No problem. My pleasure. And uh, anytime, invite me and I'll be here. It's uh, a privilege to be able to share my ideas and thoughts with you and my experience. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you. And again, it's Bornstein Law is the firm Bornstein.law is the website, and he has all his information. Uh, picture him and his staff members and such. He has a lot of great content if you're interested in following what's happening in, in the market with evictions and property, particularly Northern California. Click on his YouTube when you're done with mine, and he has some great information. That's how I found him and initially was I was really looking for a voice of expertise in this area rather than, than just somebody who was going to talk about it. And just a reminder, again, this is Probate Weekly. You can continue the conversation on Facebook. Uh, the group is Probate Weekly. We have 3,700 members. Feel free to post your content there. You can sign up for reminders at probateweekly.com. It will take you to this landing page. Put your email address in, we'll send your reminders and links to the YouTube regularly or the weekly podcast via audio if you prefer Spotify or Apple or uh, whatever. And you can find me at linktree, linktr.ee slash Gross. Love to have you continue uh, to work together there. And one of the things I have going on um, next week is my real estate email masterclass where I help agents and small business build their database of email to reach out to people and increase their contacts by 16 times. So thank you so much for being on. This is Probate Weekly. We do this every Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific time, 7 p.m. Eastern. You can watch the episodes at episodes.youtube.com. I'm I'm sorry, episodes.probateweekly.com. Thank you so much again to Daniel and everybody on the call today and make today your best day ever. Thanks so much.